Hey everybody, Magnus here. For those of you who don't know, and I'm thinking this is probably going to be most of you because I truly don't think I've ever said, I don't think I've ever said this out loud on my show before, but for those of you who don't know, I'm really not much of a gamer. You know, some people are really into video games and, you know, whatever, that's, that's their thing. But for some reason, I really don't know why, but I'm just not interested in, in most video games, you know? And I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a very good reason for that. I just have fucking no idea what the reason is. I mean, I guess the way I've always looked at it is video games and video game consoles and all that other stuff, it's basically yet more bullshit to have to spend money on, you know? And it's just for whatever reason, something that historically hasn't usually interested me. Now, if you're a lawyer, or if you are familiar with lawyer techniques, you can probably see what I, what I just did there. But for those of you who don't know, I left myself a little bit of wiggle room there. And the reason for that is because I need a little bit of wiggle room. A couple of months ago, what I did was, on my girlfriend's uh, Xbox 360... And it it really is her Xbox 360. I mean, I just, until very recently, haven't really had all that much to do with it. But on her Xbox 360, you know, through Xbox Live, I, I think it's called, you can actually download video games. And one of the things that really caught my eye was the Mortal Kombat Arcade Trilogy. Now... Basically, what that means in English is that you can download, for like 10 bucks or something like that, you can download Mortal, Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, right? And when I say Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, I don't mean <clears throat> a an adaptation of it, you know, for Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo or one of those old school systems that Mortal Kombat 3, uh, well, not just Mortal Kombat 3, all of the Mortal Kombat games were adapted into I mean like Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3 the fucking arcade version you know and when you think about it I mean it actually kind of makes a lot of sense because hardware and systems resources that were used in the early to mid 90s were a lot more limited than modern video games and so it stands absolutely to reason that you can download the entire the, the entire Mortal Kombat arcade trilogy. And altogether, that's probably going to take up about half a gig or so. And you'll have the, the original unaltered, just fucking original versions of the, uh, of the games, the ones that were in video game arcades. And, dude, it has been so fucking much fun, you know? playing all those games again because it's kind of been like revisiting my childhood in a weird kind of way you know where these these characters and these stories these video uh, video games you know these these combos you know because with Mortal Kombat you have to call them combos these combos and stuff I hadn't really revisited in my imagination in something like 20 fucking years or something like that and number one, it was kind of astonishing to me how much I'd forgotten on the one hand. But on the other hand, 
I was kind of surprised by how much I was able to remember, you know? And honestly, I would not have predicted this, but the, the game that's probably the most fun to play is Mortal Kombat 3, you know? If I play as Smoke in Mortal Kombat 3, I can kick the shit out of that game. I am awesome with Smoke, you know? Now, the other characters, I'm maybe I'm okay with or maybe I'm not, but there's something about Smoke... If I use that character, I can I can beat the shit out of the game. In fact, the one of the next to last uh, bosses in Mortal Kombat Three, his name is Motaro, and sometimes I just play like the like that. I I forget what I think it's called the novice. Like you can you, you can pick from like novice or uh, expert, master, champion, or something like that. Uh, I sometimes I'll, I'll just play novice just so I can get to Mataro faster and, uh, you know, just kind of kick his ass just because that's how, you know, that's how, how easy it is for me to, to beat the shit out of Motaro if I play as smoke, you know? So anyway, it's just, it, it's been a lot of fun. And like I say, I mean, it's kind of like revisiting your childhood, you know, which let's face it for a lot of us, that's really there's a very strong argument that many of us have never really left our childhoods. So this idea of revisiting our childhood, I don't know. That's got a certain cachet to it. So anyway, it's just been a lot of fun. And for those of you children of the 90s who grew up playing Mortal Kombat video games and had the time of your life, dude, if you've got an Xbox 360, fucking download the Mortal Kombat arcade trilogy. It's really cheap. Uh, you know, I think it's, like I say, I think it's probably going to set you back something like 10 bucks or something like that, but it's, it's just a lot of fun, you know? And I think the entertainment value you get out of it far exceeds any, you know, the, like the actual expense of, you know, paying for this and downloading the game and everything. So very highly recommended. Now, normally that would be where I where I would say, now enjoy the rest of the episode. Except I can't right now. And that's because there's one more thing I need to talk to you about. And then after that, we can finally get underway. Starting this week, I've got a new intro song, theme song, you know, call it whatever you want. But I've got a new one. And there's nothing wrong with the old theme song. I had a lot of fun with that. I'm not somehow less metal now than I was before. I just thought it was time for a change, and it was kind of fun to put together a a new theme song. The other thing is that I not only have a new theme song, but I've also got a new sort of audio montage to accompany that theme song. And that was actually, believe it or not, the real objective behind creating a new theme song with with all of that, you know, uh, basically what I wanted to do was get a new audio montage because the old one, as much as I liked it, hell, as much as everyone seemed to like it, it was a pain in my ass because I had to find music every single time that was loud enough to drown out certain background music or certain sound effects or something like that that was happening in the background of each of those movies or TV shows or what have you that the original audio montage was taken from. So... That was really my main agenda. And I thought, well, if I'm changing the audio montage, I may as well also come up with a new 
theme song, so I found one that I like, really like, in fact. And for the foreseeable future, this is what I'm going to be using. So anyway, I think that's pretty much that. I just wanted to raise some awareness about that with you guys right now. So now, enjoy the rest of the episode. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I've got a brand new theme song, as you've probably noticed. Basically, there was nothing wrong with my old theme song. I just thought it was time for a change. So, hope you like the new one. But anyway, what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And for over a year now, what I've been doing is working my way through a bunch of different six-episode uh, miniseries, or less than six episodes in some cases, or more than six episodes in some cases, but basically miniseries have kind of defined everything that I've been doing for the past year or so. And I guess to clarify on that, what I do is I follow a pretty simple structure when you really think about it. I do six episodes of pretty much whatever I want, 
Then I have a seventh episode that I do with Chris Honeywell, which historically I've always used to uh, talk about one of the DC Paradox Press line of big books. So there's been the big book of urban legends, the big book of conspiracies, the big book of losers, so on and so forth. And then the eighth episode is always, always, always dedicated to Smallville. Then I start all over again with six more episodes and then the seventh episode with Honeywell, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And what I'm doing today is launching a brand new miniseries. This is called the Brian Michael Bendis Appreciation Series. And the purpose of this <clears throat> should be kind of self-explanatory, but just in case it isn't, I consider myself to be a little bit of a fan of Brian Michael Bendis as a writer. Now, what I've noticed is that it's kind of trendy to bash on him, criticize him, pick on him, etc., etc. And I don't really understand that, at least not completely. You know, it's become a little bit of a hipster thing to do, actually, to make fun of Brian Michael Bendis and, and the way that he writes comics. Now, look, I can't speak for anybody else. Obviously, I can't speak for anybody else, but I rather enjoy Brian Michael Bendis as a writer. I really don't totally understand the the trash he has to put up with, you know, just people shit-talking him and stuff on the internet. And so you can kind of think of this as my attempt to kind of speak up for good old Bendis. And you know what? Maybe take a look at some of the comics he's written, and who knows? Maybe you'll change your mind. So that's kind of the the reason for being for this miniseries. Now, let me just say that I'll be the first to admit that his writing style isn't really appropriate for everything, all right? There's a certain... Every writer has... I don't know. It, it's a style or a preference or or, or something that, that tends to mean he can write certain types of stories extremely well and certain other types of stories maybe not so well. And for those of you who are so inclined, you can actually go back in my archive of episodes and you can find a, a, uh, an episode that I recorded with Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame wherein he, he and I talked about House of M. And Rifen's point is that Brian Michael Bendis might be a good writer, but he really... He probably wasn't the, the best choice to write House of M, you know? Because that's supposed to be a big, epic, huge, sprawling story, action-packed, and all this stuff. And Brian Michael Bendis's natural tendency seemed to be to want to turn that into a little bit of a of, of a character piece, you know, sort of a small, intimate, very television-friendly type of character piece. And Rifen's contention is that's not really appropriate for what House of M was supposed to be. And there's a there's a big sense in which I I think I understand what he means and certainly where he's coming from. So please understand, I'm not a blind Bendis devotee. I'm only saying that I think he's a lot better than he gets credit for. Also, <clears throat> there are some old school Marvel fans, and I call them Marvel fans. To me, calling someone Marvel zombie is pejorative and. Honestly, we're all comic book fans here, and I don't really think it's appropriate to shit-talk uh, people from other fandoms, shall we say, or 
the people who like brand X when you like brand Y. I don't really think that's appropriate. You know, I mean, it's one thing to do it in, in kind of good-natured fun, but I've never interpreted the label Marvel Zombie to be good-natured fun. I've always thought there was a little bit of animosity associated with that label, so I tend not to use it except ironically. <clears throat> anyway, so my point, though, is that old-school Marvel fans, maybe they've got, shall we say, philosophical problems with the way that Bendis writes comics and the way that he portrays certain characters, the way he writes those characters, so on and so forth. And guys, again, I'm not here to tell those people that they're wrong. They know more about Marvel than I do, so I defer to them when it comes to the way that these characters ought to be portrayed, the way they ought to be written, and all that stuff. So I'm certainly not out to you know, run down the Marvel fans or tell them they suck or they're wrong or anything like that. I'm just here to give you my opinion, all right? We're all friends here, so there's no sense starting trouble with anybody, am I right? So, anyway, now, the plan, at least for right now, is that today I'm going to be covering uh, the new Avengers, number one to six, and then in coming weeks I'm going to be talking about Secret War, Ultimate Fantastic Four, Alias, Ultimate Spider-Man, and Daredevil. So, if any of those sound like your particular brand of vodka, well, this is hopefully going to be just the thing for you. Hopefully you enjoy this, but that's going to be my method of attack, at least right now. Now, as I say, you never know what the future might bring. There's really no way to know that something might change or something like that, but I'm just saying that right now, that's the plan. So... That's pretty much that. Now, as it goes for this week, as I say, what we're going to be doing is talking about uh, the New Avengers, the, basically the first sort of big arc in uh, the New Avengers. This was a storyline called Breakout. And for those of you who don't know, the New Avengers, the way I always sort of regarded the New Avengers is they're kind of the the street-level Marvel characters, or many of them at least, basically forming a team of their own. So that's not completely accurate, but I don't think it's completely inaccurate either. It's just there are a lot of street-level characters on the team, is my point. So anyway, now I've got... I don't really have all that extensive a history with the New Avengers when you really come right down to it. There was a point when there was a fucking glut of Avengers titles that were coming out each month. There was the Avengers, the New Avengers, the Young Avengers, the Mighty Avengers, um, the Dark Avengers, Avengers Academy. I mean, just the, the, the number of books that were coming out every single month with the word Avengers written somewhere on the cover. I couldn't quite shake the idea that this was basically Marvel cashing in on what was at the time Marvel uh, Studios Phase 1 and the movies that were coming out at the time and the big build-up that was happening towards the first Avengers movie. And it basically felt to me like this was... It, these were basically products. These were not really books. These were extending the franchise in very contrived types of ways and that none of these books were really all that different from any of the rest. Ha, ha, ha. I had, a, I had occasion to change my mind when uh, Stacy and I first started up together, 
and uh, for one of our dates, she and I met at a comic book store. Yes, when she and I first started dating, the most convenient place for us to meet up to start our date was at our LCS. I kid you not. So, I know a lot of you guys who are listening to this, you have wives and girlfriends who may look the other way when it comes to your comics, or they may tolerate your comics, but I'm willing to bet that most of you aren't dating fangirls, so, hmm. But uh, anyway, I am dating a fangirl because I am Magnus. Anyway, so, the first occasion, I guess, that I had to give the New Adventures a different look, I saw that there was a New Adventures comic in her list of, uh, or rather her stack of, of loot that week. She'd, uh, basically, she'd gone up there, she'd picked up all of her stuff, and she was buying an issue of the New Avengers. Well, she's got very specific types of taste when it comes to comics. And so, what I reasoned is that if something is good enough for Stacy, at the very least, what I need to do is at least give it a chance, you know? consider, you know, any kind of merit or value that this comic book might have. And it, it I, I'm not going to lie to you, it was kind of a kick in the balls, you know? It's like, wow, you're buying the new Avenger? Like, really? Okay. And so, like I say, I thought that, you know, if it's good enough for her, I should at least give it a shot. And so what I did was I sat down and read the first couple of storylines in the New Avengers Volume 1, of which probably the most obvious is going to be Breakout, because fucking that's what we're here to talk about today. So, read Breakout, and I gotta be honest, it took a minute for me to get it, you know? I didn't totally get it upon reading Breakout, but when I started, you know, the subsequent storylines, this became less of a of me trying to understand, you know, just what it is that had caught my girlfriend's eye. And it became more of, of an unofficial reading project, you know. If this is good enough for Stacy, I should give it a shot. And now, having done so, it's not just good enough for Stacy. This is now good enough for me. This is good enough for Magnus. And so that's probably about as good as uh, as good an introduction as anything I can ask for to... The New Avengers, Volume 1, Number 1. Synopsis of which is as follows. With the Avengers disbanded and both the Fantastic Four and the X-Men preoccupied, a mysterious figure hires Electro to perform a job. A big one. Meanwhile, Matt Murdock, Luke Cage, and Foggy Nelson meet with Jessica Drew on the raft. Except it's not actually Jessica Drew. It's actually a scroll by the name of Veronke, I think is how you pronounce it, and Veronke has disguised herself as Spider-Woman, which is to say Jessica Drew. But that's not going to be an element of this story. Anyway, <sighs> Matt Murdock, Luke Cage, and Foggy Nelson meet with supposed Jessica Drew on the raft, which is the maximum, maximum security installation of, of uh, Rikers Island. The quartet gets ushered through the raft to see Matt Murdock's client. The raft holds the worst of the worst, 
which is to say, eight levels of super-powered serial-killing maniacs, including the Purple Man, whom Luke Cage uh, holds a, a personal grudge against. Getting inside an elevator, they travel eight levels underwater to the bottom level where all of the generators suddenly power down. Not restricted to the raft, the entire city of New York is plunged into darkness. Civilians have a moment to ponder this power outage when a lightning bolt tears into the raft. Peter Parker first sees the power outage as a blessing as it gets him out of watching a Hugh Grant movie with his wife, which is to say Mary Jane, because this is all of this is before that whole deal with the devil and all that stuff. He considers that a blessing, at least until he notices the huge bolt of lightning coming down on the raft. Spider-Man piggybacks a ride to the island on the, uh, on the underside of a S.H.I.E.L.D. helicopter, one that also gets hit by a stray lightning blast, um, which causes Spider-Man to plummet into the river. Spider-Man swims through the freezing water and gets greeted on the raft by the helicopter's official passenger, which is Captain America. Meanwhile, inside the raft, Electro materializes out of a ball of lightning collects the person that he was sent there to free, and to cover their escape, frees the remainder of their prisoners. As explosions rock the raft, Murdoch makes uh, Jessica Drew take them to his client. Opening uh, his cell, Murdoch pleads to the disheveled hermit for help. When asked, Murdoch reveals that the man is the Sentry, the most powerful superhero on uh, on the face of the planet, who's serving a voluntary life sentence for killing his wife. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, I gotta, I, I, I have to say, this, and kind of as I was saying a while ago, this immediate storyline didn't, it didn't, at first it didn't really help me understanding, you know, what exactly the hype with the new Avengers is all about. I just, I didn't, I didn't get it you know, when I first read Breakout, and I certainly didn't get it after reading issue number one. But I guess my entry point into all of this was, back then especially, I was not a huge Marvel expert. So uh, this was a kind of an, a, uh, an interesting opportunity for me to read uh, Marvel comics that basically contained a a sort of a wide variety of characters. And I guess on that basis, it was extremely successful because, you know, you have appearances in this in this issue from who we all thought at the time was Jessica Drew. You've got Luke Cage, Matt Murdock, Foggy Nelson, Electro, Captain America, and, and some other ones. So this was a really good uh, entry, uh, entry point, I guess, into what was becoming what some people consider to be sort of the Marvel Universe version 2.0, you know, or maybe the Bendis version of the Marvel Universe, you know, however you want to look at it. And so on that basis, it was extremely, it was extremely helpful. And certainly I enjoyed the art in this issue that was done by uh, David Finch. And I really enjoyed this sort of, I don't even know what the hell to call this style, but between the line style and the and the sort of painted coloring, it's not really painted, but it looks sort of painted. 
it just has this very illustrative approach and i just i i really dig it 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 the entire i guess tone of this first issue is very i i, I can't I, I don't really feel comfortable calling it you know born identity light but it does sort of remind me of the born identity somewhat you know it's just a little gritty and if this was a tv show you'd almost expect it to be shot with a handheld camera and all that stuff that's just I don't know. The, that's, I, I guess, my my sort of take on it. So, anyway. Um, the other thing that this thing does is it we sort of get a dime tour of the raft <clears throat> and what exactly this thing is, how it works, who's, who's, who's been imprisoned there, etc., etc. And again, this was extremely instructive to me, you know, as a sort of neo-fight Marvel fan. <clears throat> You know, this was just a completely, completely new idea. You know, a lot of this stuff was. So, anyway. All of this is to say that, you know, this is... A, as as far as first issue goes, this is a little bit... Michael Bailey has a way of comparing Michael uh, Brian Michael Bendis to um, uh, McDonald's in that you've, you've got a sort of a... This is sort of a, a Big Mac of a storyline, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to consume and it's, uh, I don't know, it's satisfying while you read it, but once it's over, you don't look back and say, man, that was, that was amazing. That was the, you know, the, the best comic book I've ever read or the best burger I've ever eaten. You know, you don't really think of it like that. It's just, it's very, uh, functional, which I tend to somewhat agree with. So anyway, all of this, though, is my is uh, my way of saying that this is this is I think a very functional first issue. But it, I've always kind of thought that Brian Michael Bendis is one of those writers who needs a couple of issues to really get the story going, and certainly that is the case here. So anyway, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just saying that because fucking it's kind of true, which I think is a pretty good sort of sort of segue. <clears throat> into issue number two, synopsis of which is as follows. Another explosion rocks the raft, and Captain America and Spider-Man watch Electro and his client flee the scene. Seeing that there's no way to catch him, Spider-Man does the next best thing and jumps towards uh, the hole in order to help people, despite Captain America's warnings to let S.H.I.E.L.D. agents take point on this. Spider-Man should have listened, though, for instead of people looking for help, he finds himself face-to-face -face with scores and scores of supervillains. Dogpiled upon by the baddies, his mask gets ripped off and his arm gets broken by Jigsaw. Meanwhile, on the bottom level of the raft, Matt Murdock's trying to get the sentry to assist them in, es in, in escaping while they and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents get attacked by Carnage. Murdock tosses Foggy Nelson into the sentry's cell and closes the door, warning him not to open it, no matter what. Murdock, Luke Cage, and Jessica Drew, who isn't actually Jessica Drew, but you get the idea, fight Carnage until another villain uh, comes out to join the fight. Murdock's old nemesis, Mr. Hyde. On the surface, Spider-Man's getting pummeled by dozens of supervillains when Captain America breaks him up and leads a group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents into the fray. Trapped inside a lightless cell, Foggy manages to convince the sentry to help. 
Emerging from his cell, the sentry grabs Carnage and flies at top speed through eight floors of the facility and out into the stratosphere, all the way to outer space. Once there, he proceeds to act as judge, jury, and executioner to Cletus Cassidy and tears Carnage in half. Cage takes care of Mr. Hyde and, and Drew flies them uh, flies them out of the exit the sentry made when Hydro Man starts drowning them. They get to the surface to join Captain America and Spider-Man in the free-for-all. One of the villains, which is to say Ironclad, grabs Cap and throws him high into the sky where he's caught by Iron Man. Cage is confronted by the Purple Man who tells him to kill the other heroes and then himself. To be continued... I gotta tell you guys, this is where this story really gets cooking. Now, in my experience, Brian Michael Bendis generally needs, I don't know, maybe three or four, sometimes as many as four issues, to really get this story going. And that's not the case here. You pretty much get balls deep into the action right here in the second issue. So, basically, you've got a first issue that designs... Uh, that's designed to get everybody, you know, into position, get them on board the raft, and basically position all the characters to, you know, do whatever it is that they're going to do. And then he, right here in issue two, just starts, uh, just starts tearing it up, really. Now, one of the things that I, that I like about this is, and I don't think this was actually in the first issue, but starting right here in the, the uh, second issue, because of the fact that we're dealing with this point with, I mean, shit, it's got to be like between, you know, the heroes and the villains and the shield agents and supporting characters and all this sort of stuff. There's got to be a good dozen, maybe two dozen characters in here. And honestly, I would think it's probably even the, the rare Marvel fan, like hardcore Marvel fan who can identify all of these characters on site. And so the first panel in which these villains all appear, it gives their name, their alias, if they use one, and then their power. That way, at a glance, you can kind of get an idea of, you know, who these characters are and basically why it is that they're fucking Spider-Man shit up so bad. So, or somebody else's shit up, as the case may be. So, there you have it. Now, this is also a pretty good introduction to the Sentry. Now, I don't know if the Sentry's first appearance was in the last issue, but I do know he's a new character and he hasn't been around all that long at the time that this issue's come out. So whether the last issue was his first appearance or if his first appearance was a little bit before that, it wasn't long before that, put it that way. And I've heard it said that basically the Sentry is... If the Marvel Universe was to ever have a character basically a Superman of their own, the Sentry is pretty much who he'd be. You know, an absurdly powerful character who can use these vast godlike powers. But because this is the Marvel Universe, he's got to have some kind of major heavy-duty flaw. And the thinking goes that the more powerful the character is, the bigger and, and I guess I mean, by that I mean worse, his flaw has to be. Now, when you talk about a character who's just as fucking ridiculously powerful as the Sentry is, 
he's got to have a pretty fucking major flaw. And in the Sentry's case, he's mentally unstable. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I'm not a therapist, so I mean, I'm really not sure what exactly his his mental disorder is. But whatever it is, it's it's enough to really cause problems for him. And he also doesn't necessarily have Superman's sense of restraint because he pretty much drags Carnage into upper orbit, tears him in half, and then that's the end of Cletus Cassidy. And that is something, obviously, that Superman never in a million years would ever do. So, anyway... Sentry is a pretty interesting character, is what I'm saying. And I got to be honest, it is very funny to me that the the most powerful the most powerful character in the Marvel universe is named Bob. I just that's very <laughs> that's very funny to me. And then we get to you know we're starting to get now closer to the um, to the end of the issue. In fact, the last page where we come face-to-face with the Purple Man, whose entire shtick, as many of you may remember from the Jessica Jones Netflix series, his entire thing is persuasion, which is to say mind control. He can make people do pretty much anything that he wants. And when you when you come right down to it in terms of uh, characters and... Uh, the the Marvel Universe, implicitly. Actually, you know what? Before I even get into that, let me just say that, guys, I'm going to peel back the curtain here a little bit. The day that I'm recording all of this is October the 23rd, 2015. All right? So, to put it another way, the Jessica Jones Netflix show hasn't been released yet. So, I haven't seen that show, and I haven't seen what... Uh, that show is going to do with uh, the Purple Man. I don't know. So they may go in a direction that's completely not my interpretation of the Purple Man. Just keep that in mind when I say that the Purple Man, I've all just implicitly, implicitly, has always been one of the creepiest fucking characters in the entire Marvel Universe. Precisely because of the fact that his his power of persuasion, he can make people do literally anything he wants them to do. That's always just creep me the fuck out. And certainly this very last page, we see a sort of a close up of the purple man. He's sort of munching on an, uh, uh, on an apple here. I just can't shake the creepy vibe of all of this. And so I don't know. I mean, this is a good issue. Lots of fun. Lots of fighting. Lots of action. And so, certainly, I'm, I'm. It would be fair to say that you know, when I first was reading this story, I, I was at this point, I, I would. I don't think it would be accurate to say that I was a huge, you know, New Avengers uh, devotee. You know, I was a new convert and all that stuff. I don't think that's the case at all. But. I definitely was interested to see where this story was going to go, put it that way. Which is probably about as as uh, good a uh, transition as I can ask for into the synopsis for New Avengers Volume 1, Issue 3. 
The mind-controlling purple man just gave Luke Cage an order to kill the heroes fighting the raft escapees. However, what he fails to realize is that he's been drugged and his powers temporarily do not work. This, uh, this gives uh, Cage the opportunity to beat the shit out of Kilgrave for threatening his girlfriend, which is to say Jessica Jones, and their unborn child. He beats him to a bloody pulp before Captain America stops him. The seven of them, which is to say Spider-Man, this non-Jessica Drew, Jessica Drew, Luke Cage, Matt Murdock, Iron Man, Captain America, and the Sentry, fight the legion of superpowered villains and manage to keep 45 of the 87 prisoners on the island. The next morning, Cap comes to Iron Man and tells him how the previous night reminded him of the story of how the original Avengers were first founded and that the new team was formed by fate to put the balance back in place. <clears throat> Cap goes off to recruit those, um, those heroes who fought at the raft, starting with Spider-Man. Steve Rogers meets up with Peter Parker at his job teaching high school science. Peter agrees to join as long as he can leave if it doesn't fit him very well. Cage also agrees as long as Cap agrees to let the team try doing, uh, doing things in new ways. However, when Cap tries to recruit Daredevil, he hits the wall. Daredevil declines the offer, claiming that his current situation would put the team's reputation at risk, and that's something that he refuses to do. And for those of you who don't know, basically Matt Murdock had been outed to the media as Daredevil, so that was kind of what was going on at the time. Matt Murdock was in seriously deep legal shit at the time. Anyway, so moving right along... Jessica Drew, having gotten pulled from her S.H.I.E.L.D. assignment uh, because of the incident at the raft, agrees after learning the only reason that she's still in S.H.I.E.L.D. at all is because of Cap. The team meets at Stark Tower, where Tony Stark tells him that the top three floors will be their headquarters and dormitory if need be. Jarvis returns to aid them after his vacation. Tony says that, although he's still not convinced the team's going to work out, he's, got, he's following uh, Captain America on this one. Jessica Drew stands outside Stark Tower, talking to a mysterious figure. She tells the figure that if they want her to report back on the activities of both S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers, it's gonna cost them. To be continued. Now, this issue is, um, it's just a, it's a little bit more functional. It's designed basically to pivot from what you might call the introduction you know, this whole idea of these heroes joining forces on the raft and then beating the shit out of a bunch of supervillains. Pivoting from that to an official team being assembled from all of this. And on that basis, this is just, it, it's a little bit of an expository issue. I mean, yeah, there's still, you know, lots of fun and there's some action and stuff at the beginning. But they're... You know, after a certain point, that sort of switches over and we start getting into a little bit more of a, how shall I put it? It's, this is just a little bit more uh, mechanical, you know, what with Captain America running around and uh, recruiting all of these different characters and bringing them on board. Now, that having been said, there is a, there is a, a nice little moment with... Uh, Jessica Jones and uh, Steve Rogers, and it's it's a little bit of a callback to um, 
the uh, the first storyline in Alias where there's a sense in which Jessica kind of saved Steve Rogers' ass, pretty much. I mean, you know, he was being set up for a little bit of a scandal, and she she spared him of that, shall we say. And so there's a little bit of a callback to that, you know, their kind of affectionate greeting of one another. Because, I mean, I think at this point it would be fair to say that, you know, they really are friends now. And, you know, there is this whole kind of bonding angle now of, uh, you know, Steve uh, touching Jessica's stomach and feeling the baby's kick and all of that. And <clears throat> I don't know. It's just, you know, having having talked about uh, the uh, first alias storyline in some previous episode. I forget the issue number, but, you know, fuck it. You've got iTunes. Look for it. Or go to twotruefreaks.com and look for my, my section there, and I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. So, anyway. Now, moving right along, there is another, you know, Daredevil. And I'm not talking about Matt Murdock now. I'm talking about Matt Murdock in full Daredevil gear. He does have a little bit of a cameo appearance, and, you know, I'm a pretty big Daredevil fan, you know, from way back. So this is, this was definitely welcome. I mean, I would have loved it if Daredevil could have actually been part of the team. But number one, he has good reasons for not joining the team. Number two, he will eventually join the team, so it's fine. But his uh, personal life, his reasons for doing it is that his personal life is kind of a disaster at the moment. And this... This is a good reason for him to not want to join the team. Now, I would have loved it if Daredevil could have joined, but, you know, he's got good reasons for wanting to stay home on this one, so that works for me. So, anyway, he's been outed. It's been a, a huge mess, and that's that's really his reason for not for not wanting to join. So, anyway... After that, it uh, it's uh, Jessica Drew's turn. Now, yes, again, this is not... This is not actually Jessica Drew. It's a scroll, but fuck it. At least for the purposes of this story, it is in fact Jessica Drew. But just remember, it's not in fact Jessica Drew. There's a there's this sort of uh, the bottom. It's not even a panel. It's actually a couple of panels. For some reason, these panels are seg. This one panel is actually segmented into a couple of panels. It's Steve Rogers just grinning at uh, Jessica the scroll. And I don't know why, but he just looks very college frat boy steroid moron in this panel. I don't know why. He doesn't look like Steve Rogers to me. He just looks kind of like an NFL player who's done way too fucking much steroids. Anyway, that's just the way I look at it. I don't know. Anyway, so lots of fun. Really enjoyed this issue. And I don't know why, but... There was something about, I guess, the exposition of this uh, of this issue, you know, the amount of character that Bendis was able to put into all of these, you know, talky scenes. It helped get me inside of the, these characters' heads when I was first reading, um, you know, New Avengers. And again, <clears throat> I was, I am not a big expert of, uh, you know, on the Marvel Universe, but I was certainly not a big expert on the Marvel Universe back when I was reading, first reading, you know, this storyline. So I needed all the help I could get. So all of these character moments that, you know, Bendis kind of takes a lot of shit for, 
they were helpful, at least to me, in terms of getting inside the characters' heads and understanding who they are as people, you know? What exactly makes them tick? These are not cardboard cutouts. These are not super friends. All of these characters, they're not necessarily joining the team for the same reasons, and they don't necessarily have the same agenda as one another. And that that actually makes all the sense in the world to me, you know? I, I buy the fact that Spider-Man is joining for different reasons than Jessica, uh, Jessica Drew. And Jessica Drew, her motives and her agenda are different from Matt Murdock. And in fact, Matt Murdock's problems and his agenda, those things are, are precisely what keep him off the team. So, you know, yeah, there is a sense in which, you know, fate kind of assembled this team for Captain America. But they're all staying on the team or not staying on the team for their own reasons. So, anyway. Now, excuse me while I have a sip off of my Coke here. While I'm at it, I'm also going to uh, have a drag off my, uh, my e-cig here. You know, I got to tell you, when I first started using electronic cigarettes, I tried to smoke them the way that you smoke, you know, regular cigarettes, which is to say you pull off it and you hold the smoke in your mouth and then you inhale. And that's really not the way to smoke uh, e-cigs, right? That's not the way you vape, as they say. I would almost want to compare it to an inhaler where you pull off it and then you inhale as you, as you're uh, pulling off of the uh, e-cig, you hold it for a sec, and then you exhale, and and then of course what you exhale is just kind of harmless water vapor because you've already absorbed the uh, nicotine through your lungs, and I got to tell you, you know, once you actually figure that out, because no fucking nobody told me that's how you're supposed to uh, smoke or that's not the way that you're supposed to vape off of uh, e-cigs, right? I never knew that. And so every time I tried using an e-cigarette for a while there, I was always coughing like a motherfucker. So those of you listening, you could kind of think of this. In fact, you know what? Don't even think of this as a cigarette. Think of it as a nicotine delivery system, all right? And what you do is, like, see, just, just listen now. I'm going to be inhaling as, you, as you're hearing all of this, right? Just listen. Hold it for a minute. Exhale. And man, on the exhale, you feel that nicotine. It hits you like a ton of fucking bricks. So whereas you might need like two or three drags off of your cigarette to get that same, you know, that same kind of hit with your e-cig, all you need is one at the most two. And uh, that gets you right where you need to be most of the time. So anyway, a little bit of uh, education there for those of you who maybe aren't big experts on e-cigs. Now, to get back into the summaries, that's pretty much the, uh, you know, everything that I had to say about uh, the third issue. So that's about a, a, a good a summary or a good a transition as one can hope for 
into New Avengers Volume 1, Number 4. Synopsis of which is as follows. Jessica Drew, who again is not Jessica Drew. Jessica Drew arrives at Stark Tower as Captain America and Iron Man are trying to get Special Agent Maria Hill, who is the acting director of S.H.I.E.L.D. to release the Sentry into their custody, and to inform her that the Avengers are reforming. Hill doesn't take the news very well, saying that uh, that very thing is what put uh, Fury where he is, which is to say, look, see Secret War for more on that, and we'll be coming back to Secret War at some point in the future. But what shuts her up is uh, Cap explaining to her that he has champion-level clearance, which means he doesn't actually need S.H.I.E.L.D.'s permission to start the Avengers or make use of the Sentry. When asked about the investigation into the Raft breakout, she would only speak to Cap alone. The team, including Drew in her Spider-Woman outfit, is briefed by Cap about the breakout. They'd confirmed that it was, that it was in fact a prison break to break out one specific inmate, but that person is still unknown. They find out um, who the 42 escapees are and from a video clip of this blurry shoulder, or rather of his blurry shoulder, Spider-Man's able to identify Electro. Iron Man tracks him down to, uh, in Boston, and they uh, head there in a new Quinjet. Max Dillon, a.k.a. Electro, meets his girlfriend in Boston with every in, uh, intent to run to some tropical island uh, with his girl and his ill-gotten gains. However, the Avengers are right on top of him. He attacks, but... Iron Man quickly traps him inside of a stasis bubble. When he refuses to talk, Cage has Spider-Man web up his hands so they could pound the crap out of the villain, and then the villain promptly faints. However, Spider-Woman thinks up another way to get the information they seek. The captured escapees of the raft were temporarily held in Rikers Island Penitentiary. In walks Spider-Woman, who asks the incarcerated inmates to spill on who Electro broke out. She's met with silence. That's when she brings out a box of apple crumb cake, Intamin's donuts, and says that the first person that tells her would get the box. Every one of them screamed the name Carl Lycos. Carl Lycos is a mutant that absorbs life energy in order to survive. Overeating causes him to turn into a pterodactyl man named Sauron. The new team of Avengers then head to where Lycos would have fled, which is to say, the Savage Land. While looking up his shield file, they discover it's, that it's been locked from the inside. Despite the best attempts of the dinosaurs of the Savage Land, Iron Man successfully pilots the Quinjet down. The Avengers get out right before a large Tyrannosaurus foot crushes it. They split up and flee into the jungle. When they think they're safe, Cage and Drew stop to breathe. What Drew doesn't see is a short, hairy, bare-chested man about to slit her throat from behind with three claws extending from his fist. To be continued. So, this again is a little bit more of a, of a uh, transitional sort of functional issue, but there's still a lot to be said about it. Not least of which is that sort of Phoebe Cates moment of Spider-Woman walking down the uh, stairs in full Spider-Woman outfit, and, oh, man. Man, oh, man. And 
fact, the other the other characters even kind of compliment on uh, or comment on that. They say, "Well, Agent Drew, in the most PC, non-threatening, professional way, I'd like to say, damn, girl." And I kind of have to agree with that. Hot damn. Anyway, so and that actually kind of leads into the sort of you know comedic bit where Luke Cage asks Spider Man if he gave gave her her powers, and then Spider Man answers, "No, she's totally unrelated to me in any way." So she ripped off your name. Exactly. I don't know. It's just that's that's very funny to me. And this is when we kind of see, I guess, the for, the first sort of pass at. I don't know. I guess this team sort of coming together. You know, they're sort of gelling together as a team, you know, and the way that they the way that they're relating to one another. And I think, you know, a good example of of, you know, what I mean here is this and of course they don't number the fucking pages, so I just have to explain, you know, describe what's happening on the page. But basically um Cage asks uh, Spider-Man to web up his hand so they can beat the shit out of Electro. Spider-Man does it. And then what he what what happens is Electro just sort of passes out from the fear of it all. And honestly, who could blame him? And so Cage asks Spider-Man to take the webbing off. And Spider-Man says he can't. It's going to take about an hour for it to dissolve. So hope you don't need your hands for the next hour or so. I don't know. That just, that works for me. So it's funny. Another kind of funny moment is uh, on the Quinjet when they're on their way to the Savage Land. The question gets asked, okay, who the hell is Carl Lycos? And Spider-Man responds, he's a mutant. I've had the honor of being smacked around by him. He can suck energy or suck out your powers or something. It's something to do with sucking. And when he does, when he overdoes it, he turns into this giant green old Jurassic Park thing. He's like a dinosaur. A vampire dinosaur. I mean, vampire or dinosaur would have been enough, but this guy's both, which really, that's just showing off. I'm not, I don't know. I mean, this is... <laughs> it's, yeah, I, look, I understand, you know, people's point when they say that Bendis can be a little bit verbose in a lot of his stories, but... I don't know. I mean, I just, I love his dialogue in these, in, in these types of stories. I mean, yeah, I can, especially with Ultimate Spider-Man, I can definitely see where people kind of get a little bit fed up with his, you know, teen speak and all that stuff. But the kind of stuff that we're talking about here, you know, all these jokes and stuff, I don't know. I just, I really love this. This is, uh, to me, this is just, this is top, top shelf. So anyway, from there, um, Goings on in the Savage Land, Jessica Jones getting threatened by what at least appears to be Wolverine. I don't know. I mean, this is... Again, guys, I was completely... Well, not completely new, but I was very new to the Marvel Universe at the time that I was reading this. And so... This, you know, this whole idea of going to all of these major locations in the Marvel Universe. Uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the Maximum Maximum Security Prison. You've got uh, Stark Towers. Now it's the Savage Land. 
I mean, guys, I didn't really know a whole lot about those locations other than the fact that they exist. And so this, you know, this storyline breakout, it's kind of a nice little introduction. It's almost like a tour of the Marvel universe in a way. And I don't know. I mean, like I say, I, this is a story that I freely admit I, I really don't have very much objectivity about precisely because this was my first, one of my first like major exp- um, one of my first major excursions, I guess, into the Marvel Universe. And so because of that, you know, it's got a soft spot in my heart. So anyway, that pretty much leads us into New Avengers number five. Um, and the, the synopsis is as follows. Stranded in the Savage Land, Iron Man, Captain America, and Spider-Man fight the T-Rex that destroyed their Quinjet. Iron Man finally takes it down by flying directly into its jaws and fights it from the inside. They then search for the others. The others being Luke Cage and Spider-Woman, who is currently being threatened by a short, furry-clawed man. Cage recognizes the man, but before he can do anything, Spider-Woman shoots him in the face with a bioelectric venom blast, uh, flips him over her shoulder, and slits slits his throat with his own claws. This doesn't make Wolverine very happy, but... Cage is able to keep uh, keep him from doing uh, any more fighting before they reunite with the rest of the Avengers. Fighting him with the T-Rex carcass, which I'm sure didn't make PETA very happy, Wolverine explains that the X-Men were contacted by the Scorcher, a very old Spider-Man villain who was trying to go straight. He said that the Savage Land uh, mutates uh, contacted him about uh, breaking Lycos out of the raft, but he declined. After the raft was busted open, Wolverine knew it was about Lycos and hoped, uh, rather hopped, the first Blackbird to the Savage Land. They're in the middle of exchanging notes when they're attacked by a gaggle of mutates. Their powers uh, go dead, and a mutate with persuasion powers forces them all to go to sleep. They wake up later, imprisoned in the chamber of Brainchild. A mutate... Why does this thing keep saying mutate? I think this is supposed to... Is, is this supposed to say mutant? Fuck it, I'm saying mutant. And if that's wrong, well, eat me. A mutant with incredibly advanced intelligence. Also, they wake up completely naked. Cap demands to speak to Lycos, and when he appears, subsequently demands his surrender. Lycos declines. Cap then informs him of the 44 inmates that escaped with him and demands his surrender yet again. Lycos asks Brainchild why why he didn't assume they'd be coming uh, after them. Brainchild says they were assured that nobody would. Lycos then goes on a rant uh, that Sauron was forced to work for the, Weapon, uh, for the Weapon X program, hunting down and exterminating other mutants, and he was only locked up because he said no, to which Logan replied, wah, wah, boo-hoo. Lycos tells Brainchild to kill them all and dump the carcasses, despite Brainchild's protest to let him use them as guinea pigs. He also says to separate the, uh, the bodies, saying that there isn't enough vibranium in the world to save them from S.H.I.E.L.D. if anyone found out they held Stark or Rogers. Tony, having heard enough, assembles his armor into voice-activated battle mode and has it blast Lycos and free them. They locate their weapons and costumes and dress as spy- and all that stuff as Spider-Woman defends S.H.I.E.L.D. from uh, the other Avengers, saying that S.H.I.E.L.D. wouldn't do this. 
Mutants attack and the Avengers go into battle as Wolverine hunts down Lycos, who is trying to make a quiet escape. Wolverine's claws find their mark as he embeds them into Lycos' chest. All this does, though, is allow him to siphon off Wolverine's mutant energy and transform him into Sauron. Using his hypnotic powers to stop the Avengers in their tracks, he begins to tell them that he was brought to the Savage Land for a reason when a bullet flies through the pterodactyl man's head. S.H.I.E.L.D. agents hiding in the bushes are told by Yelena Belova, which is to say the Black Widow, the highest ranking agent there, to wipe the entire area clean. No survivors. To be continued. And here, once again, this is basically just a huge action fest of an issue uh, to kind of break up the monotony of the past couple of issues, which had, you know, tussles and whatnot, but didn't really have these huge action set pieces. And so this is really uh, in intended to be a little bit more of, a, uh, uh, of an action fest. And in relation to that, it works just fine. And as a matter of fact, I dare say that David Finch actually does a hell of a job of basically giving all of the teammates something to do. Because one of the, the tricky things about doing these huge group battles, I would imagine is the fact that you have to find something for all of the teammates to do, and it has to be something that that particular team member and nobody else, th that particular team member alone can do. And that has got to be a pain in the ass. And I would think that the majority of that probably comes down to the artist's uh, individual judgment, because the way that I hear it, is that Brian Michael Bendis, he'll basically write something like three pages of dialogue or something like that for every single uh, comic that he writes. And then he says, okay, and then, you know, this person fights this person, and then the issue ends with this happening. Other than that, draw whatever the hell you want. And when you think about it, that does tend to invest the artist more into the story. But one of the, I guess, sort of drawbacks to that is that it's now incumbent upon the artist not only to handle all of the pacing of, uh, of the comic book, but now he's got to be the one to, to figure out, you know, which character fights which other character. I mean, unless he's been instructed explicitly by Bendis, he's pretty much got to work a lot of that stuff out all on his own. And I'm, that's not good. That's not bad. It's just true, you know. And uh, anyway, that's that's pretty much what I've heard about the way that the way that uh, Bendis Bendis writes uh, stories. He's basically sort of Marvel method on steroids. I mean, this is like beyond Marvel method. So anyway, there's really not a whole lot to say about this issue except for that sort of cliffhanger in, uh, ending where Sauron gets his brains blown out, and then S.H.I.E.L.D. agents move in, basically saying, no witnesses. Including, by the way, the Avengers. No witnesses at all. So, how's that for an uncomfortable conclusion? So, that pretty much leads us into issue number six. Synopsis of which is as follows. As Spider-Woman, who's not actually Spider-Woman, but you're probably sick of hearing about that by now, as Spider-Woman orders the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents to stand down and the Black Widow orders them to fire, Iron Man's armor begins to charge for a magnetic field and informs them that the, that the files about the raft incident had finished being analyzed. 
Of course, that wasn't exactly the best moment to review the files. As a lower agent refuses to fire on Captain America, the widow shoots him in the head and begins firing at the Avengers herself, and the rest of the agents follow suit. As Cap yells for no casualties, mainly for Wolverine's sake, Spider-Woman flies him toward, uh, towards the widow. Claws uh, stretched outward. They would have killed her if not for Cap's shield slamming into the back of his neck. Even at low power, Iron Man activates a polar magnetic field which causes all metallic objects uh, to float toward him, including keys, guns, Wolverine, and everything else. Seeing as they were unarmed and very much outmatched, the agents flee the scene. S.H.I.E.L.D. says that they have no presence in the Savage Land and the Black Widow, which is to say a freelance S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, isn't supposed to be in the Savage Land. Considering she and S.H.I.E.L.D. agents just tried to kill them in the Savage Land, Spider-Woman uh, Spider asks, um, asks her whose orders she was following and what they were doing in the Savage Land. Widow keeps her mouth shut. So Spider-Woman goes on to inform her that she has a license to kill and demands a name. Widow responds, I work for the same people that you work for. Before they could interrogate her further, Sauron's corpse jumps up and breathes fire on the Widow. Iron Man and Cage are able to knock Sauron out and he transforms back into Lycos. He apparently absorbed some of Wolverine's healing factor when he transformed, which is the only reason he was able to survive. They decide to hunt down uh, the rogue S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and get a ride back to civilization when Iron Man uh, detects strange readings in the distance. Those readings are the remaining S.H.I.E.L.D. agents doing what they, can, uh, doing what they came to the Savage Land to do, enslave the native inhabitants and force them to mine vibranium. The Avengers charge into battle as multiple energy blasts fall from the sky, decimating the entire installation. Only Iron Man's repulsor uh, field saves them from utter destruction. The source of the blasts are uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Her uh, helicarrier. Agent, Heel, uh, Agent he Hill, the S.H.I.E.L.D. director, God, that's a hard thing to say, claimed that their own investigation into the raft breakout led them to the Savage Land and that the destruction of the mining installation, quote, was the appropriate response, unquote. As for who was behind it all, they merely said that the investigation was ongoing. She says the helicarrier would fly them back to New York and thanks them on behalf of the Weapon X director for retrieving Sauron. But, for the record, we did ask you to stand down. You ignored us. Quote, unquote. When they're alone, Iron Man tells the team that there's another problem. The S.H.I.E.L.D. files given to them about the raft had been tampered with, so he compared them with the files from the old Avengers database. Over a dozen of the prisoners had been declared legally dead, and yet they were still imprisoned. This means that the shield, uh, that uh, the shield files indicate not uh, that not that shield was not only stockpiling super weapons, they were also stockpiling super villains. Whoever's behind all this knows the Avengers are onto them, but the Avengers don't know who they are, and even if. And even if they do nothing, the real bad guys know they know something. Cap offers anyone the option of backing out of the Avengers now if they feel they can't handle it. Tony then offers a spot to Wolverine, which makes Cap want a private word. So, Iron Man uh, basically says, Cap, you said this team came together by fate. That's your word. 
Just like the, the original Avengers, right? Well, the original Avengers didn't truly come together until that one last ingredient came into the mix. We needed that one last ingredient. And then when we found you, you were that one thing. But for this team, for this situation, for this world, he's you. He's our missing ingredient. And Captain America's point is that, hey, look, the fucking guy's a murderer. And Stark replies with, he's a samurai warrior. After what happened to Wanda, after what we know happened here today, we can't afford not to have him. We're going to need someone who can go to that place that we can't. And you know exactly what I mean. And I guess that's really all Cap needs to hear because against his better judgment, he agrees to allow Logan a spot on the team. Meanwhile, in a hidden location, the Black Widow lies in a hospital bed. She's horribly scarred by Sauron's attack. Her employer offers her a chance to reap vengeance on the Avengers for what they've done to her, and she agrees with gusto. The end. This is basically the moment when you realize that Breakout isn't really a story unto itself. It's actually an entree into a much larger story. And in fact, this would this would lead into a story a little bit later on down the line. I think like a year or two later from all of this, or maybe even more than that. And it basically what I'm talking around here is Secret Invasion. Now, those of you who are interested in hearing me talk about Secret Invasion, I actually did an episode about it with Michael Bailey. Um, this is about a year ago by the time you guys are hearing this. And so, you know, go ahead and track that episode down if you're so interested and just see for yourself. It's a pretty good little story, but that's basically the end game of this. You know, goings on with Secret Invasion, that's where some of the subplots and stuff that are introduced in Breakout, where all that stuff kind of comes to a head. So if you're interested in that, go check out Secret Invasion as a story. And then feel free to listen to my episode with Michael Bailey, wherein he and I talk about Secret Invasion. Now, again, what you need to understand is that I I sort of came at this from the, the point of view of not being a huge Marvel expert, but desperately wanting to get in on the act. You know, I wanted to, to know more about Marvel and read these stories. And this was an extremely good sort of entry in all this. And also... I realized that something huge was being set up here and that I needed to track down, you know, uh, whatever the culmination of this breakout story was, which, as I say, was Secret Invasion. So, anyway, what I'm saying is that I really don't have a lot of objectivity about this story. I really enjoy it. And I, you know, I understand, I guess, like on an intellectual level, I understand where people are coming from when they say that you know, this story is, or for that matter, Brian Michael Bendis is a little bit overblown as a writer. And this story, it doesn't really have a conclusion. It basically is, this. it's not really a story unto itself. It's the beginning of sort of an epic in the Marvel Universe. And you know what? Fuck it. I'm totally fine with that. So if that's, you know, if that's where things are, are, are headed, I don't really mind that at all. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying here is that Brian Michael Bendis, as a writer, he's one of my favorites. I love the way he writes most stories. No, I'm not saying he's 
you know, that he's appropriate for every single story. But I do think he takes a lot of abuse, way too much abuse, in fact. And he's a better writer than that. And I, it's high time that he gets credit for it. This is the beginning. This, this storyline here, Breakout, this is the beginning of a fucking epic in Marvel Comics. I love this ride. I love this era of Marvel Comics. To me, it's just tons of fun. And so, if you've never read it before, I highly recommend it. So, that is pretty much it for me this week, at least as far as Breakout's concerned. Now, in, like I say, in the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about Secret War, Ultimate Fantastic Four, Alias, Ultimate Spider-Man, and Daredevil. So, just keep an ear out for that, and... Uh, those stories are uh, going to be coming down the line very soon. That's going to be the uh, Brian Michael Bendis Appreciation Series. But that's pretty much it for this week. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Is your entire life populated with liars? Ever wondered if you're talking to somebody who's completely full of shit? Well then, have we got the app for you. Juked Micronics is proud to present the Lie Detector app. Yes, as seen on TV, the Juked Micronics Lie Detector app is here. And does it work? Bet your balls it works. All you have to do is turn on the Lie Detector app, Hold your phone up to your Mark's mouth and ask them to repeat their last statement. And within mere moments, the Juked Lie Detector app will tell you if your Mark fed you a line of total horseshit, or if they're telling you more truth than a 9-11 conspiracy video. The Juked Micronics Lie Detector app. Perfect for job interviews, Al-Qaeda terrorist interrogations, and double-checking your teenage daughter's alibi. The Lie Detector app, now available from Juked Micronics. Hola, suckeros! Moria Clawhammer here. Thanks to a tax loophole and a life insurance policy, I have an authentic Mexican taco stand. The Explosive Taqueria! Well... If you want a pound of burrito, or just get your tongue on a taco, well, get off your ass, take a waco. Come throw some meat down your throat. If you want some food, here's a thingo. You don't want to eat like a gringo. Have some Mexican grub with some zingo. Taco sauce that explodes in your mouth. At the Explosive Taqueria in South DeManzaville, we have every kind of goddamn Mexican food you crave. We got chimichangas, ensalada, 
churros, chupacarnes, deep fried jalapeno poopers, Doritos, the famous Taco Shake, Taco Shake discontinued, triple refried baked beans, Choritos, Chimichibas, Chimichochas, the Commodore's Nachos, and the ever popular Endless Burrito Bowl, all prepared by our authentic Mexican cook, Manuel. My name is David. I'm from Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the ladies, we have the Tila Tequila, a tiny taco, but you'll be amazed how much beef and cheese we can stuff in there. For the daredevil, we have the El Pollo Croco, a full chicken stuffed with four soft-shell tacos, two beef burritos, and two sides of your choice, deep-fried and slathered in taco sass. The taco sauce with sass. So lock down your sphincter and come on down. The Explosive Taqueria, 312 Elm Street, South de Monzaville. Tell them Maury Clawhammer sent you. Arriva Dirty. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. 
All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.